Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hello, friends. Welcome to Unsiloed the show that busts the echo chambers. If you dig hearing opposing perspectives about big issues from a point of mutual respect, if you like debate but love light, not heat, welcome home. Hola, amigos. Como están? This is Charlie. I'm solo this week. Jesus is at an undisclosed location during this recording. So you're stuck with me, but I hope not to disappoint. There's lots to talk about. I'd love to give you my perspective. I'd love to hear yours. So when you see this episode out, social media, our comments on it, please let us know your thoughts on the topics we're going to cover or that I'm going to cover today. See, I'm so used to saying we. So there's a bunch of stuff going on. The Bud Light thing continues to exist months in. It's a very different kind of dynamic than we've experienced before with uh, brand boycotts, but we're not going to talk about that. The DeSantis-Disney dilemma and debate continues afoot with information lately, uh, as a matter of fact, as recently as yesterday, about the latest uh, convolutions in that whole situation, but we're not going to talk about that. What we are going to talk about is uh, three stories, some pretty big, some maybe not so big that I thought were kind of interesting. And so in no particular order, I'm going to share with you what they are, give you my thoughts on them, and would love to hear your thoughts. So here's the first one. Uber this week announced that it will start allowing teens to ride unaccompanied in select U.S. cities starting next week. And this is a move by the ride-hailing giant to expand its user base. Well, of course. And teens will have to use a family account with mandatory safety features. So that's the story. Now, if you go into it a little bit deeper, you can find out that there is all kinds of restrictions on this. It applies to teens between 13 and 17. So it is not yet the tween unaccompanied program, which will probably follow it at some point. So we're talking about 13 to 17 year, year, year olds, and they have to have an account that's linked to their parent or guardian's account Drivers can opt out of the program. So if they see that they're being hailed by a teen account, they can decide not to pick up said teen. And there's even features additionally that are going to be deployed around this particular program that allows parents or guardians to actually communicate with the driver in a different way than people can today. So there's all these different features, including an in-car audio recording feature that 
I guess has been available to customers for a while. I'm not sure if they've ever used it. I certainly haven't. But the idea is to give parents and guardians peace of mind that their teenager is using Uber safely and responsibly. Now, what do we think about this? Well, when I first read this story or first caught this headline, I thought, well, that's going to be a really bad thing the moment that we see some tragic headline about a child who is kidnapped or absconded with or, God forbid, something worse done to them. And this thing is going to be blamed, and Uber consequently will be blamed as a result for even introducing this idea. That was my first response. Now, you kind of click a little further into the data, and you find out that right now, the vast majority of taxi rides, right, so people hailing uh, rides, uh, that the underage population is already doing this. I'm trying to find the exact stat right now in the article as I'm looking at it, but it's a crazy percentage of um, of teens that already do this. And they don't just do it on Uber or on Lyft or some other ride-hailing service, but they do it even in taxi cabs, right? People who live in New York will probably not be very scandalized by this idea of sending your kids or young or teenagers at least uh, in cabs, even teenagers directly hailing cabs, right? Um, I'm not sure what the current rules are in New York, but... That's certainly something that wouldn't strain credulity to consider. So on some level, it's already happening. And so it's sort of built into the cake that this activity has been going on for a long time. So that's true. And maybe that mitigates a little bit what I initially thought about. I still think it would be horrible the moment that something terrible happens to a teen. And I still think that Uber and this new program specifically will be blamed for that should, God forbid, that happen. It's no different in a way to when, you know, the first electrified, uh, you know, vehicles, the first uh, EVs started rolling off, uh, you know, the assembly line. And specifically when they got, you know, uh, features like the lane assist, which then became basically driverless automated driving, which you can essentially do in a Tesla and other vehicles, that the moment that one of those things uh, got into an accident, like all of Tesla would be blamed. And that did happen. Now, the numbers are so small for that particular uh, case that it kind of blew over. And I think there's a possibility of something similar happening here. If God forbid, there's some terrible thing that happens to a teen, there might be an initial outcry, but then beyond that, maybe people will still keep doing it and, you know, behaviors and attitudes will change as a result. So yeah, there's that to consider as well. The one thing that I thought about though, and this particular piece that I'm reading from the verge makes the point that most teens now with Uber accounts or a healthy number of them anyway, are basically just setting up or kind of working around or hacking the existing system now to begin with. So it's not like they're not taking Uber rides as is at an age under 18, which is the current policy of Uber. Uh, They are doing that and they're doing it really frequently. They're doing workarounds. And that's the part that I thought was interesting to share, which is all of these products that are rolled out for under 18 uh, or for kids under 13, if you're using digital tools, so things that don't fall within the governance of the Children's Online Protection Protection and Privacy Act, all of these things, these products, don't ever seem to consider the percentage of the population under those ages that is already using the mainstream product. I love it on Capitol Hill, and I've mentioned this before when Jesus and I have talked about, you know, the heads of YouTube and Snapchat and Twitter going up in front of 
Congress to talk about their safety policies. They always mention the same thing. You know, some Congress person will say, well, did you know that kids are doing this on your platform? And they say, no, they're not, because we have rules against that. Look at YouTube kids or Instagram kids or whatever the platform happens to be, the kid version of that platform. But they never talk about, well, what percentage of the total kid population is actually using this product versus the percentage that's using just the mainstream, you know, garden variety product. And my guess is that the congressional inquirers are not sophisticated enough to ask that question. But I know that when the platform leaders leave the room, they're happy that they didn't get asked that question because the truth of it is, is that young people figure workarounds all the time. It's been happening for millennia and it'll continue to happen no matter how sophisticated the technology gets. So that leads me to sort of the final thought on this, which is what good is this product really for or like what good can it actually do in the world if the value proposition to a person under 18 is continue with my workaround or now sign up for a new product and then have my parents or guardian control it. I got to imagine adoption by the existing base of users will be very small. Now you could say that it opens up a whole category of new consumer and presumably that's what Uber is thinking about. They want to broaden their customer base, but at what cost, you know? Um, so there's a lot to untangle here, but my principal thought is it seems like a little bit of a throwaway product in a way, if at least part of the consideration is that we're going to migrate existing underage users to this new platform. Cause I just don't think that's going to happen. So you're really making it about just the new underage people that you can pick up. And the value proposition to the public is we're doing this because we want to expand our consumer base and make more money. And I know that there's other reasons why. I know that there's, you know, parenting issues and getting kids to soccer and doing a variety of different things. I'm not suggesting that those reasons don't exist. But at least on the surface, it appears we're trying to get more customers and this is a way to do it. And so the trade-off there from a brand standpoint becomes the moment something horrible happens, uh, the reason why we've done this seems pretty shallow and superficial. And again, the adoption rate of existing underage people to this new platform seems really suspect. So all in all, I would think that this would be a neutral to bad move in general by Uber. And I'm not sure what Jesus would say if he was here, but that's my thought on the situation. So what do you think? Let us know. Second story is about Twitter's new CEO. As everyone has heard by now, Elon Musk confirmed this week that NBC or previously NBC Universal's global advertising chief, Linda Yaccarino, will become the new CEO of Twitter. I never met Linda Yaccarino in my advertising, corporate advertising days, but I knew of her name very well. It was mentioned very often um, as somebody who had a lot of gravitas in the advertising community, by the way, and no offense to the advertising community. It doesn't take much to have gravitas in the advertising community. In fact, it's a lot of the times entirely dependent on where you happen to draw your paycheck from. So if you work at Disney or NBC or ABC, uh, you're going to draw a lot of water just by virtue of working at that company. It has a lot less to do with the person than the person might actually think is true, but it is true. So let's just be real for a second. But um, by all accounts, a very competent executive, somebody who's been in the media industry and the advertising industry for a very long time, and somebody who clearly has solid relationships with the advertising 
community. So is this a good move or is this a bad move? Look, on some level, it's a natural move because Elon Musk has been talking about getting a CEO for quite a while, frankly, since he acquired Twitter. He's been saying, I don't want to be the CEO. Um, I you know, want to be involved, but maybe involved around product, long-term vision, and he is going to remain the chairman, executive chairman of uh, Twitter X, this new Twitter um, you know, entity. So he's definitely going to be involved. But by all accounts, he's been pretty clear from the beginning that he didn't want to be the CEO of this thing. So on some level, it just seems like, okay, great. He did what he said he was going to do and hired a CEO. And the question is, is this the right CEO? And can this CEO fix some of the issues that are going on at Twitter to the extent that you believe that they need fixing? Because I know that opinions vary on that question. And on that score, I'm definitely mixed. Okay, so let me tell you a couple things about this that I think are important to consider. Number one, this is a visible hire to a very specific subset of the constituent population that Twitter serves. Uh, Linda Yaccarino, I'm sure perfectly lovely person and very equipped from a you know executive and operator standpoint uh, based on her resume from NBC Universal. But as somebody that outside the advertising world, um, maybe bleeding into the media world, because once you get to that level, you kind of end up being on both sides of the camera to some degree, although not as much, again, as people who are in the advertising world think they are. Just because you get invited to a junket doesn't mean that you're a star, right? So, um, so, But you do get somebody who's visible in a very narrow band of the universe, which is the advertising world, essentially. Not to, It doesn't say anything to the technology uh, world, to the consumer constituencies that Twitter has, to the international maybe constituencies that Twitter has, to the governmental, uh, you know, in, uh, constituencies that they have or increasingly uh, seem to have. So it's it's a loud voice or a loud or, or a big hire in a you know very specific sort of niche to my mind, in the world. The other thing is, because I've read a lot of pieces about this, well, she's got, Linda Yaccarino has really solid client relationships or advertiser relationships, and there's no doubt about that. People who lead uh, global sales organizations for blue chip media companies know the decision makers at every advertiser. That's, that's their job. They're supposed to know that. But what a lot of people don't know is that in practice, what that means is that they're really close to the advertising agency executives that represent those brands. Now, I'm not suggesting that Linda Yaccarino doesn't know more than a Rolodex full of CMOs. I'm sure she does. However, 90 percent, 90 plus percent of the advertising universe, uh, even at that level, is occupied with relationships directly with ad agencies and ad agencies come and go and ad agencies change in leadership like all the time. So it would be too much to say that because she has great client relationships, that means that she has great direct to brand relationships. That's one. And it would be, it would be too much to say that because you've got good agency and brand relationships, you can just transfer those over to Twitter. Bear in mind that even though uh, Lindy Acarino managed a portfolio that included digital, on a sort of personal basis in terms of coming up through the chain, most of her experience is with linear media, with broadcast media. So she's not really like a digital native by any stretch of the imagination. And to the degree that that matters, it's important to mention it. 
And I think it kind of does matter, right? That there's not a really a digital DNA or certainly not a social DNA uh, in this hire, but there definitely is an advertiser and client sort of DNA, albeit more on the agency side than directly with these clients and executives. So those are two things that I would mention uh, to qualify the advertising sort of prowess of any person. It's not even about Linda Yaccarino. If you work on the media company side of the advertising world, 99% of your best relationships are going to be with clients. That's just the reality. And frankly, I've talked to a lot of CMOs and they're very practical about this. They don't need to have relationships with the heads of sales for ABC or what have you. They do, and they'll do they'll use them to their benefit and of their brand's benefit. But you've hired these agencies and give them hundreds of millions of dollars basically to manage those relationships for you. That's just the truth, okay? So I think those are important qualifications. Now, is she the right person to fix the problems? Again, here are the problems. Uh, you know, your mileage will vary depending on who you ask. It's been fairly well documented, although nowhere verified because Twitter is no longer public, that Twitter has shed a lot of advertisers. Um, and that seems to be true. Now, could it also be true that they've picked up advertisers? Seems to me that's possible as well. It seems like this is a very different company than what it was. It's 70 plus percent smaller in terms of an employee footprint. So it's a lot smaller company. It now has subscription products, which account for something. And even if the advertising base has shrunk, it doesn't seem to have affected, if we believe Elon Musk, in its profitability profile, since the company never made profit before, and now it still hasn't, but it seems to be near break even. So fixing the problems, you know, again, is a relative thing depending on where you're starting from. I think that uh, Linda Yaccarino is a good hire in terms of getting big advertisers who maybe have left the platform to have another look at the platform. Even when they do, they're still going to be faced, she's still going to be faced with the reality that advertising itself as an industry is off, right? Dropped off fairly significantly, especially over the course of this last year and change due to inflationary forces and a variety of different things, you know, the war in Ukraine. Um, and other other things. And so you've got less money sloshing around out there to begin with. And now you're in a completely different competitive set, right? You're, you're talking about a person who led organizations where she could say, hey, we've got the Olympics and we've got, you know, all of these variety of talent and movie stars and what have you. And that's not really the sell at Twitter. The sell at Twitter is very different. Even before Elon Musk, it was much more of a sell of, connectivity and being in the zeitgeist and being, you know, connected to what's happening, but it's a very different product. It's a very different value proposition and it's a very different time. So I'm not sure just how successful she'll be to migrate those previous relationships over to Twitter just by virtue of her being there. Although I do think she'll give people a, a reason to have another look. By the way, side point, for those of you who might be leaders and managers looking to hire salespeople, contacts don't necessarily transfer. If you're hiring a contact, you know, Rolodex, if that's what you think you're doing or the principal reason why you're about to hire somebody, stop. Because generally speaking, people will come into your organization 
and they will bring aboard, you know, one or 2% of their very best people who are willing to take a flyer on the new thing. But for the rest of it, you got to go sell to those people. It's not like just, oh, I know so-and-so, therefore my money goes with them. I mean, that is naive to the nth degree. So it's hard to bring people over from, I'm not saying you can't, you can, and I have personally, but it's not like that's the bulk of your book of business just because you did business with somebody before. And it doesn't even work that way when you're going from, from media type to very similar media type. Like if you're going from a network sales position to another network sales position, but it sure doesn't work as easily when you're going from a basically integrated broadcast driven uh, kind of sales proposition to a social digital only digital native value proposition. So there's a lot of noise that people make about that, you know, relationships and how those can get monetized in new places. It's not as easy as people make it out to, to, to seem. So is Linda Yaccarino going to be helpful on the product side? I'm not sure. Um, she can certainly look at consumers and see what they want and what they need and provide guidance to the product teams on what those things are. So I think she'll be a great influencer to those things. Um, can she provide uh, any air cover in the area of, you know, government regulation and all the issues that Twitter has been facing vis-a-vis this whole content moderation and privacy conversation that's going? Maybe. I, I would give it a kind of neutral at best. Her inclination is going to be to support the advertiser. And when you support the advertiser and put them kind of first, not always, but you know, usually that means you're not thinking of the user first or the consumer first. So that one's still kind of a you know TBD in my mind. Will she help get Elon Musk under control if that's what you think the problem is? Highly unlikely, highly unlikely that she'll be able to just rein him in and muzzle him and make sure he doesn't make a lot of noise. In fact, I think that that would be a strategic error because he's the one that people want to talk about. And that may actually be a challenge to Linda Yaccarino, who's used to being on a very visible stage and in a very big spotlight relative to the area that she's occupied. So all of those things together, you know, make me question what the real impact of uh, this hire will make. I think that there will be positive uh, outcomes from this, but I think that what I've read so far, if that's any indication indicating this as kind of more of a white knight that's going to write the advertising ship and bring Twitter back to whatever it was before, even though it made no money. Um, I think some of that stuff, at least initially, seems overblown. So we'll see. I'm happy to be wrong, but that's my assessment. Okay, last, also a media story. And it's the fact that Vice Media Group this week filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And there's a whole consortium of its lenders that appear uh, that they're going to be taking over the company. And uh, there's a number of players involved in that, but there's a big part of that that's actually backed by um, a George Soros fund who is, you know, very much uh, an investor in the area of shaping culture and shaping uh, perspective and perception. So no surprises there and probably very aligned from an ideological standpoint. Nothing shocking in that. What is shocking is this company was once valued at nearly $6 billion and had major blue chip backers, not just private equity companies looking to you know get a good deal um, like Disney and News Corp uh, or Fox at that point. I forget what it was called. And that's no longer the case. And uh, you can ask yourself, well, how do we get to this moment of going from a $5.7 billion valuation to filing for chapter 11's 
bankruptcy protection and being basically garage sailed out to private equity firms that are going to, you know, spit polish the, uh, the gem here and then probably try to flip it in, in two to three years. How does that happen? Well, I mean, I think that there'd be a longer show if we got into every reason, but from this vantage point, from this chair, is that Vice, in a way, lost its mojo. It lost its sort of reason for being. Now, some of that may just be cultural. This I, Cultural in the sense of, at this moment in our culture, the idea of the Vice brand is something that is less desirable and less monetizable. Why do I say that? Well, Vice started as a punk rock magazine, as a zine. It wasn't even a magazine. It was like a flyer, essentially, in Canada and Montreal years ago in the 90s. And it was very avant-garde and very out there. And it was very offensive and scandalous. And it had that tone of, we're going to go there. So if you want a story about, you know, eighth graders running a meth lab, that's us. If you want a story about, you know, people that uh, have uh, a sexual proclivity to, uh, you know, produce the vegetable aisle, we're going to go there too. So they would do a lot of things and that cemented them as these kind of punk journalists that would just go anywhere and do anything and say anything and you just didn't care what anybody thought. Well, enter the period that we've been living in for the last 10 years where irrespective how you feel about it, we're living in a much more tightly controlled uh, opinion bubble as it relates to mainstream or large media. There are unacceptable positions to take. You know, the whole idea of cancel culture arises from that dynamic. So you've got a lot of situations where the things that Vice would say or talk about just weren't in that camp of the inclusive kind of bring everybody together, kumbaya sort of moment. It's almost like to think about, you know, the, the, another brand of similar sort of provenance uh, or similar, I guess, controversy, a brand like Playboy as an example. Playboy's had huge issues over the last many years because their idea of, you know, basically soft core pornography, essentially, that was very male-centered, uh, very much about, um, you know, young women scantily clad or not clad at all, that was something that really just fell out of step with the way that culture looked at things. So they've tried rebrandings, they've tried to, you know, do a variety of different things, but the reality of it is, in terms of any zeitgeist, which Vice made its number one currency, Playboy doesn't really have much anymore. And I would say that that's a similar thing that happened to Vice. They used to be the it kids. And it was because they were the tip of the spear and they were not afraid to get their nose bloodied in all kinds of conversations. And that started to change. And part of that was the ownership structure. A lot of people who don't abide that kind of stuff getting into the cap table. Well, that's going to make a difference. That's part of it. The other part of it was they started buying a bunch of other stuff in order to show growth and show a scale, things like refinery 29 and agencies in the UK and all kinds of stuff where, you know, like that can distract you and that can take you a little bit off your game. Um, now some would say they would quibble with me and say, well, they kept doing their journalism and they still was vice news up until very lately. That was another casualty that happened in the last couple of weeks. And so they still had this very journalistic streak and their stuff was really good. And I agree with you. I think it was good, but on the whole internally and the, the mind share required to maintain that brand vision and brand kind of equity and that space takes energy. It takes focus. And that's something that it seems that they lacked. But I think the, the larger issue 
is the fact that the way that Vice was built and its positioning is something that broadly has maybe fallen out of favor with the way that popular culture uh, looks at issues ranging from race to sexuality. And I think that they are one casualty of that. Now, what will happen to Vice now? Who knows? Maybe the, you know, they'll, I mean, it's keeping, it's staying in operation because these uh, investors are basically pumping money into it. They have it on life support. So they'll keep it around. And there's, they, they claim, Vice does, that they're not stopping any of their journalism. So who knows? Maybe certain things will fall off and die off and it'll refocus its energy. But I think there's a big question about brand and what the brand will be and what voice it will have and what permission it will be given by consumers in the Gen Z uh, and early millennial demographic who seemingly seem less interested in the kind of approach, tonality, and positioning that made Vice what it was. So I'm not sure. I still think the private equity guys will make out like bandits because they always do. The rich keep getting richer. That's just the law of the universe in some cases. But um, but it's it's a big TBD for me in terms of what happens to Vice long term. And anyway, that's my observation. Maybe you see it a different way. I'd love to hear from you. I hope you enjoyed this inaugural solo episode of Unsiloed. And remember, please, to continue to live a life out of the silos and interact with points of view that you might disagree with. We'll see you again next time on Unsiloed. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.